Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 5, Heroes of the Republic. It was written by Mia Smith, no relation, and directed by Alex Sakharov. In this episode, Octavian becomes both consul and a problem for the Senate, Farina settles down to a life of familial bliss, and Antony grows one heck of a beard. Looks great. Yeah, you rate Antony and the beard? Yeah, I think it's a good look for him, that and the furs. (laughs) Um, Quick question. Yeah. Unless I just fell asleep for a moment, which hopefully I didn't. So I think this is the first episode that doesn't feature the newsreader which Ooh. quite surprised me. I think I was waiting for him to come along. A little bit controversial. <laughs> and it was quite a lengthy episode, I think. News reader not needed. No good news, no bad news. Maybe there was just too much happening in this episode. It did feel like there were a lot of different things going on. There was quite a lot happening in this episode, though. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Did you like the episode? I did overall. I felt it was a bit bitty, just from a... Bitty? Bitty. What, what's well, bit, like what's... we flitted around from one thing to another. Bitty. For example... Right at the beginning, we start with Timon and his brother in the synagogue. Yeah. Was that just to remind us that they exist? Yeah. Well, look, I guess it was maybe a holdover from another episode that they decided, we'll just put it in here to show that, you know, this is still going on. I actually liked that they did that. I was kind of surprised that they didn't come back to Mm. it, but they didn't need to. I was actually kind of really surprised that there was a quite well-established Jewish synagogue in Rome. I feel very ignorant about this, and I mm. didn't go and research it, I'm afraid. There might be archaeological sources, but I don't know of any. Yeah. And I also feel like our Roman sources, the Romans are just confused about Judaism, so they're not much help. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's not give that scene too much, yeah. uh, you know, more bearing than the episode did. Uh, so we do get a few quick scenes at the start of this episode. So you see time and praying with his brother uh, with as much dedication as I have when I'm praying in churches. And, you know, I seem to have forgotten the words if I'm in church, which hasn't happened for many years. But regardless, so that happens. Then you also get another quick scene of Antony hunting deer for his men, which I have lots of questions about the feasibility of that happening. Help me out here, because you mean you don't think he's tough enough to go hunting? I, no. I you just I, think he'd send someone else? Yeah, I think he's got more important things to do. He looks very native. In the furs. He's, he's rocking the skin. Yeah. But I thought, given the outcome of the plot here, are those Lepidus's men? Because Lepidus's men turned to him straight away. We're told that. They yeah. will just defect. No, they, those, maybe, are, those are Antony's men. Oh, I thought maybe it was, you know, oh, well, he'll give us deer. Of course we'd go over to Antony. <laughs> to take more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we've had this very deliberate characterization of Antony as very informal. He can't be bothered with all of you know the rules and regulations of the Republic. He wants to just cut through stuff. He's mm. a hands-on kind of guy. He's one of the soldiers. Yeah, that too. And it, that's mm. actually comment. He, I think he himself mentions it later on, that mm. they like me because they see me as one of them. Yeah. And uh, then we get Varinus and Pullo returning to Rome uh, with the rescued children from slavery. They just liberated them from the slave camp. And uh, running into the troops of Octavian, young Caesar, sorry, uh, who are camped out on the campus marshes. But also they're blockading the road. I think they're in the way. No, no, there's a kind of 
Okay. Fend- I think they're checking on people as they come through. As, uh, you, well, you want to make sure that uh, that nobody's going in there who might cause trouble for October. I, that was I the impression yeah. I got, yeah. yeah. I have no evidence whether that tended to happen in Rome. What we do have evidence for is uh, that this kind of happened, as in, let's hit the history books right away. Octavian did march on Rome to get his interests. Yes, and this is big news because an army marching on Rome, it always means that there's turbulence, there's danger. There's... That, that the Republic's under threat. Yeah, it's a threat, obviously. Yeah. It's not the first time it's happened. And Appian, good old Appian, tells us in Book 3, Chapter 89, it's a long quote, but I think it's good. Mm. When the news of Octavian's approach reached the city, there was immense confusion and alarm. It's not surprising. People ran hither and thither, and some conveyed their wives and children Sorry, and whatever they and held thither. most. I know. You, you, <laughs> Not just hither, but thither as well. <laughs> you're really undermining the seriousness Sorry. of Sorry. the situation here. It I is a bit of an old-fashioned. <laughs> it's an old-fashioned translation. They ran all over the place. And some conveyed their wives and children and whatever they held most dear to the country and to the fortified parts of the city. For it was not yet known that he aimed only at securing the consulship. So they worry that he's going to invade the city. Mm. Having heard that an army was advancing with hostile intentions, there was nothing that they did not fear. The Senate was struck with consternation since they had no military force in readiness, which I believe is actually said in the Senate, perhaps by Cicero, but when they're talking about we've got no way of combating. Yeah, of standing up to Octavian, yeah. Yeah. They complained essentially of the inopportune time for such strife while Brutus and Cassius were far away. So they're still thinking Brutus and Cassius might come back and save them. Mm. And their forces were not yet organized. And on their own flank, in a hostile attitude, were Antony and Lepidus, who they thought might form an alliance with Octavian. And thus their fears were greatly augmented. Mm. Cicero, who had so long been in evidence was nowhere to be seen. Oh, that's ironic because yeah. uh, he's front and centre speaking as the voice of the Senate in this. It yeah. seems like he's given way too much power than he would normally have, actually. If you didn't know, I think you'd assume he was consul at this point, which yeah. he definitely isn't. Yeah, that's the way this episode kind of portrays it. He's, yeah. he's speaking on behalf of the Senate and everything. But I think in as much as it uses what we have from historical sources, I think you're quite right. Whenever it says the Senate, mm. they put that in the mouth of Cicero. Yeah. And I know why they do that. Oh, it's of course they do. Yeah, and you, you can't cast every member of the Senate and have them all you know, have a say in the episode. You give it all to David Bamba because he's bloody good and we're not going to have him for much longer. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's like, I'm not, I'm not upset that we've got more Cicero time because, yes, I know. I assumed it was going to be this episode. Actually, I was surprised he was alive at the end of it. Let's just say that the next episode is very packed. Okay. Yeah, yeah. More I'll, than this I'll, one. I'll, well, every episode becomes more and more packed as the show goes on. Yeah. On behalf of the Senate, we are deeply thankful. Not quite thankful enough to give me the triumph I asked for. Uh, now there, I'm doing you a favour. Mutiner was a lovely victory, it's true. But it was a victory over other Romans. And, with all respect, Hershey's and Panzer. Hershey's and Panzer are dead. May the gods feed them honey. They are dead. What Cicero says to young Caesar in this episode, it passes the sniff test. Can Mm. I say that? So there's a reluctance to give any power to Octavian to give him the role of consul, but he is there with an army. 
And at one point when he's speaking to the Senate, his men kind of, you know, make a show of mm. pulling their swords out of their hilt as kind of a, does anybody want to say something against Octavian? Yeah, I thought the armed men in the Senate conveyed the immense fear that we get in our sources mm. that would have been felt in Rome. But I think we would be told very specifically if anything close to that had happened. And the Romans would have been absolutely scandalized, even by the standards of what they've already been through. And all the rules are getting broken all the time. Mm. But armed men in the Senate, no. Okay, we're getting ahead of ourselves there. But the other part of it is that Octavian says to Cicero, I will not act without consulting you. Mm -hmm. So he butters Cicero up. Cicero kind of takes that at his word. Mm-hmm. but I don't think he completely buys it. Uh, I think he, in retrospect, he's surprised by how fast it unravels. Yeah. And he says, okay, we'll let you become consul because that's an apparently a decision that Cicero can make. <laughs> and once he leaves that meeting with Octavian, even his slave questions it. Yeah. Uh, is this something we're actually going to let happen? And he goes, Tyro. Oh, yeah. Have let we him seen have Tyro before? Tyro. Tyro is kind of a famous well, Friedman of Cicero. He's called Tyro in this episode. Okay. I mean, he's often mentioned in Cicero's letters and there are kind of novelizations from Tyro's point of view, that kind of thing. So he's quite a well-known character. Okay. He's played by Clive Ritchie or Rich. There's an E at the end. He's an actor and composer. Uh, Let me just quickly look up his IMDb. Uh, The first episode he was in is Son of Hades. So he's been in a couple of episodes before. I can't remember him being named in the dialogue, but I could be wrong about that. Season two, episode two, so three episodes ago. Okay. He will be very memorable in the next episode as well. Okay. Well, yeah, <laughs> and maybe that's why he got pointed out here. Bumptious young fool. The consul's chair, indeed. Yes, but you will give it to him. Oh, why not soothe his vanity? He can do no harm. He will wear the purple as he wears armour, like a child playing at grown-ups. I think you're right, just to bring it back to what you were saying about passing the sniff test, that the sort of dynamics that are going on, the power struggle, is quite well represented. So Mm. for the Senate, there is absolutely that sense of we've got Antony's very powerful army, which Octavian will be feeling a bit threatened by, but even more so the Senate thinking about him joining up with Octavian that's a huge threat. Mm. But can they, in the meantime, play Octavian and keep him on side, give him a little bit, but control him? Yeah, and that's that, what that never this is ends all well about. in history, yeah, does it? It yeah. never ends well. Mm. Whereas Octavian thinks that he can get this bit of power. I mean, in consul, it's quite a lot of power. He knows where his weaknesses are. He doesn't have as many troops as Antony, mm-hmm. but you know, if he has to, he can join up with him. So they're all playing each other and biding their time. Yeah, yeah. So Cicero does balk at the idea of somebody so young being consul. I think that's the biggest problem that he had with it. Well, yeah, he's 19 and yeah. he meant to be 42. Yeah, oh, well. And, and Octavian also wanted a triumph. Yeah. And my dear boy, not happening. Caesar had been very aware of this. You know, he has that quadruple triumph and he very specifically has them all over foreign places. Yes, but while I'm here, or I'll also beat these people. <laughs> the civil war is not really mentioned. Mm. You don't march Romans in triumph. Yeah. And yeah. it would have been a bad policy. And it's sort of quite a nice sign that Octavian might be quite good at manoeuvring, but he hasn't yet realized the full extent to which PR is important. Mm. What I did get a sense of, and I realize this is my own lack of imagination. People go on about Octavian just being 19 at this point. But I think it's because Agrippa and Mycenas are present here in this episode too. Just how young they look 
like little gang of boys trying to run Rome. Yeah, they are Crazy. very young. It's like, it's like a bit of a lads group, isn't yeah. it? This feels like like a fraternity. <laughs> what, you mean like an American college yeah, 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 yeah. Something went tor- horribly wrong during, <laughs> during the hazing session and now Octavian wants Rome. <laughs> and, and I think it does portray that very well, just how shocking it would have been mm. to have someone this this young in such a position. The Republic had been very specific about, you know, the Senate is called the Senate because it means the group of old men. They're right. He's not old enough to be in the Senate to hold any magistracy, Mm. let alone that of consul. We get some scenes with, uh, I almost said Fulvia again. We get some scenes with Atia and Octavia here, and they are both very conflicted about how much they should be capitulating to Octavian. Octavia less so, I would say. Yeah, Artia seems to be wavering in her allegiance to Antony. Well, I guess she sees the necessity of now seeing Octavian as a man in his own right. I mean, we can't really talk about any other history here because the, this sort of soap opera element of Artia being with Antony in the first place and that introducing conflict into her own family mm. is invented. So like, it's fine along the lines that it's drawn, but... I have nothing to say from in terms of the sources or the history about that. Yeah, but in, in terms of the sources and history, this is around the time that Artia dies. Mm, exactly. In, as in, you know, in the history books, Octavian's mother, she dies around this time. Rein us back in a bit. What should be happening with Artia and Octavia at this point in history? Well, as you say, Artia dies around now. Her reputation completely unsullied and nothing like the character that we have on screen. Yeah. Octavia, therefore, I guess, becomes the most important woman in the Julian family. She's an elder sister Mm. and she is part of the family that is on the rise now. Yeah. So she is, as we'll see, she's going to be used very strongly in that. She's currently married to a man called Marcellus and they have three children and she will subsequently be portrayed as the perfect wife. I don't want to get too far ahead plot-wise, but she will be yeah, used dynastically very soon. Honestly, you're not really uh, getting too far ahead plot-wise at, at all. So the whole stuffing around with the Agrippa is just completely fabricated for this show. No, eventually Agrippa will marry Octavian's daughter. Yeah. But she's not in sight yet. <laughs> well, no, clearly not. Interesting how they're keeping those characters relevant. Mm. Also, to some extent, how they're drawing from what we know of... Uh, Antony's wife, Fulvia, at the time, not appearing in the show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's a strong argument that the way Artia is characterised usurps bits of other women from this period. So Mm -hmm. characters like Fulvia, who were much more involved. Fulvia was really kind of fighting for Antony or, you know, rhetorically fighting for him, voicing his interests back in Rome, much more involved in politics than traditionally elite Roman women would be and in terms of her morality they're using women like Clodia who Cicero had bagged as a loose woman yeah and they're taking instances from her life and giving them to Artia so Artia is a bit of a amalgamation yeah of all of the much denigrated women who you know we're all all out of place (laughs) we're all all out of place and not just the quiet domestic goddess so Artie is standing in for that, and she continues to. And, you know, I absolutely get why they don't kill her off. Why would they kill off Artia? They've created such a vibrant character. Yeah, and it's also going. a character that they can put anything on at this point, mm. and it doesn't matter. You know, she can be used in any storyline in any way. 
and the conflict with Sevilla, which did not make an appearance in this episode, mm. has got to build somewhere. Yeah. Other part of it is, uh, and you'll see this in the next episode, the, the Fulvia nature of RTO is only going to grow, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. Lots to look forward to. He will come to me. Make the first gesture and you will have the moral high ground. I gave birth to the ingrate. He will come to me. You're delusional. He's not coming. Thank you, daughter. I really appreciate these little chats that we have in between your drug binges. Varinus comes home to his crime den, mm-hmm. Crime HQ, and announces to everyone in the bar, with quite a lot of brutal honesty, these are my daughters redeemed from slavery. The eldest has been prostituted. The boy is my wife's child by another man. You will treat them with respect and kindness. Part of me says it's great that he acknowledges that all of this went on and yet still accepts them. Mm-hmm. But part of it is also accepting his role in all of the crap that happened. I found that quite hard to take because while it's important that he accepts them and that, yeah, you're quite right, he doesn't seem to have come to terms with the fact that he brought this on them. Mm. But announcing it to this den of criminals, the Roman view of women was once one of the daughters is, well, she's not a sex worker because it wasn't willing, she'd been prostituted, that they would just see her as in that role. So that seems really harsh on her. And also that the young boy is a child who's illegitimate. Mm. You know, that would leave him without any position. What if Varenus gets killed? He can't be his heir if he's announced this in public. Mm. It really didn't work for me within the Roman context, but also it just seemed horrible to announce this publicly for these poor traumatized children. Yeah. What they seem to do with these children is very... Random in this episode, mm-hmm. I think. I wonder where it's going to. This is Varinus's only anchor anymore. He doesn't mm. seem to be really connected to being a crime boss, you know, to have his heart in it. Mm-hmm. I'm not criticising him for that. But at the same time, it's, it's like they don't know what to do with this corner now that they've painted themselves into it. I'm not sure because I'm not a scriptwriter. I, I don't mm. know what they were thinking exactly. I guess one thing I would say is that his manipulating his fellow crime bosses is is sort of a nice, maybe nice isn't the right word, but a parallel with the kind of manoeuvring going on amongst the elites. Mm. So, you know, with Cicero and Octavian in particular playing off against each other. Yeah. Kind of seeing who can really manipulate or not be seen to be doing shadowy things in the background. So Varenus does the same thing, doesn't he? He just tries to do a kind of divide and rule. Well, actually, what it strikes me as is, so he sits down with Memeo and... Uh, somebody else whose name likely isn't important. Uh, Memeo is the the one that you need to remember Mm. in all these sort of things. Sits down with Memeo and he says, right, we will unite and we will play nicely with each other, but we will also divvy up the territory amongst ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Does that sound like like a triumvirate of some sort? It does, it does. Uh, But he also says you two are going to have this one area. That's just setting that up to be a big fight, isn't it? Yeah, and and that's intentionally, you know, keeping them busy and off his back. I think he says that too. Yeah, they'll be too busy. Too busy worrying about themselves and we can rebuild, get our soldiers back in order kind of thing. Uh, Varinus' sister-in-law so this is Niobe's sister, Lydie, visits the children, as well as recovering from the blindness that she apparently suffered a couple of episodes ago. about the blindness. Maybe becoming a religious figure do you remember, do you remember brought her P- to the light. Pullo comes back from having moved overseas, not liking it very much, and finds Lydie, and Lydie is blind. Mm. Yeah. I'll take your word for it, but I don't remember. Yeah, no. And anyway, so he's, yeah, 
that happens. But anyway, she's recovered now. She's joined the Temple of the Blessed Orbona. Okay, so it's quite an obscure goddess. That's good. I like obscurity. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things I've liked all the way along. That it's not all sacrifices and rituals it's to not Jupiter. Like the Temple of Jupiter or Temple yeah. of Vesta. You don't go for the the famous ones. You yeah, they're, they're going obscure. for the everyday religion, mm. which is good, and that would have been happening. So Orbona comes from the word Orbus, which means orphaned or deprived. Okay. So she's a goddess who granted new children to parents who'd become childless. Okay. So the orphan thing can go either way with that word, Orbus. Oh, now I see where orphanage, yeah. 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 Um, and she's the goddess of orphans, especially, and all children. Mm. So she's in the right area for everything that's going on around Lydie at this mm. point. There's a, a, a cleansing kind of ritual shown with the children, which is essentially uh, cutting open a bird and a lot of blood being slathered on, on poor Verena. <laughs> Yeah. just She keeps the straightest face and it's just slathered all over her face. And yeah, uh, that must have been a joy to film. <laughs> but is that kind of thing... Not that I know of. No, I've never heard of no blood s- being slathered on somebody as part of a ritual. No sniff tests there? Okay. Um, I mean, sacrifice happens all the time. I can see the need of being cleansed after something like that happened, maybe. Mm-hmm. Or blessed at least, or... But, you know, the Romans did think of water as cleansing. Yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) I think it's for dramatic effect. (laughs) Well, achieved. really must write to Cicero and the Senate. It's remarkably generous of them to give me so many fresh troops. I confess I had no idea how popular you are with the rank and file. Soldiers like a little spit and dirt in their leaders. You, You were too noble for them, perhaps, too aristocratic that may be so so while we do not yet get the forming of the triumvirate we do see a scene of Antony meeting Lepidus Mm -hmm. so this is the first time that we're seeing Lepidus by the way Uh, this is a actor named Ronan Vibert playing Lepidus and what did you think of how they're both portraying him and the interaction between these two men well, I guess the, the version we get of Lepidus quite often, given subsequent events, is he's sort of the third wheel. Mm. So there's going to be, spoiler, an alliance between Octavian, Mark Antony and Lepidus. But he always kind of gets the short straw and sort of gets a bit forgotten about in all because, you know, there's going to be a big conflict between Octavian and Mark Antony and they're the big characters both here and in history. And Lepidus was there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, th- I thought they did quite well with him, and he's kind of another character who's older than Octavian, but Octavian's going to sort of outsmart him, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, he seems a bit out of his depth, which, if it doesn't entirely fit with everything we know about the history, it does at least fit with the perception that people have of him, if they have one at all. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was fine. So Lepidus makes note of his men deserting quite easily and going over to Mark Antony, which uh, happened. We've, we've got that in Appian. Mm-hmm. We've also got, can you tell us about the ungirt thing, which wasn't in this episode, surprisingly. <laughs> well, it's not like they keep away from nudity. Yeah, so Appian in Book 3, Chapter 84 of the Civil War tells us, Lepidus leapt out of bed among them ungirt, so unbelted, just as he was, promised to do what they asked, embrace Antony, and pleaded necessity as his excuse. Lepidus had become his ally with seven legions of foot soldiers and a great number of auxiliary troops and apparatus in proportion. Lepidus nominally retained the command of these, 
But Anthony directed everything. So that's what I mean about Lepidus being mm. the third wheel or the second wheel at the moment. Yeah, yeah. It's just he's sort of in charge, but really there's someone else. In this episode, uh, Anthony says, you know, you can be my second in command. That kind of sums up what happens. Yeah. And Lepidus goes, ah, oh, well, quite generous. Thank you so much, man with a sword. <laughs> it's, it's, it's also an episode of people recognizing when they're just outgunned, I suppose we'd say. Yeah. And like going along with it. Yeah. The Senate does it, Lepidus does it. This scene was bizarre. Uh, we get a scene with Pullo and Octavian. I saw no reason for them to be interacting at this moment. Okay. I think it was just a reminder that Pullo really did know Octavian. So yeah. later on when they say it, we're like, oh yeah, he does their mates. But we don't need that reminder. There's no reason for them to be in the same room. Given that there's so happened. much to pack yeah, in. Yeah. The only thing that it was achieved during that scene was a reminder that Varinus has allegiance to Mark Antony, because apparently that's something that they want to bring up. But it also starts with, and they do this twice with Pullo in this episode. Mm. He begins a scene by telling what appears to be the end of a joke that has nothing in relation to the rest of the episode. So he saunters into this scene and he says, and I quote, I swear to you, four nipples. Whatever he said, I want to know the rest of it. But why is he telling Octavian this? And why does he think that Octavian's going to be interested in this? And we'll park that there and I'll come back to it at the end of the episode because for some reason they like telling us half the story that Paulo finds hilarious. <laughs> it's just so annoying. I, I, I don't see a need for it at all. It was just random. I mean, Paulo's crude, but then we know that by this point, don't we? But why does he think that Octavian would appreciate that? Don't know, one sure. of the boys now. No, he's not. But surely he knows that he's not. <laughs> he's got to know him well enough to know that. So Octavian is now uh, the consul, which is the other thing that we need to know there. And then we get a scene with Cicero finally addressing the Senate. I think this is the first time he's been down on the floor properly giving it a go. It might be. Yeah, just before the end. <laughs> <laughs> but not one of the Philippics you were hoping for him to talk against Mark Antony. Huh? Well, maybe just a sledge or two. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Just while I'm here. Octavian is introduced to the Senate as the consul. Uh, he says that he'll return Rome to an era of moral virtue, which I found very interesting. Kind yeah. Of. That's like playing the long game when it comes to foreshadowing for Augustus. It's prescient in a way that plays fast and loose with the history. Esteemed senators, I take this first moment before you not to glorify myself, but to honour my father. In his honour, I declare that my term as consul shall usher in a new era, an era of moral virtue, of dignity. The debauchery and chaos we have had to endure will now end. Rome shall be again as she once was, a proud republic of virtuous women and honest men. I think it's something that comes into sharp relief about a decade later. Yeah. Well, we'll see. They talk about some punishments that do become much more specific later. Mm. Um, exile as a punishment for immorality. But they're using it in a pretty loose way. But I think that's okay because, you know, Octavian is a bit of a prig, is built into this, isn't it? So mm. 
it makes sense. And you know, it's certainly true that the Romans saw the fall of the Republic and the disarray of the Republic at this period as some kind of punishment from the gods, that they weren't acting in a moral way. And Octavian played on that. Yeah. It's like, oh, I can make something of this. I can make myself the new morality, the new golden age that's going to usher in all of this correct behavior. Yeah, yeah. More immediately, do you think it's affected convenient plot-wise by the actions of Atia? Yeah. I mean, they've shown Octavian has brought up in a household where all of this illicit activity is happening all the time and he's aware of it and never really approved of it, did he? Mm. So, and again, you know. I mean, it's I, all very well and good when he sleeps with his sister. But... Yeah, they've also made him a hypocrite. Yeah. That, so neither remember that storyline? <laughs> I do remember it and I was remembering it when they met up again in this episode and I don't think I need to say it yet again, but I will anyway. Both Artia's behavior and the incest of Octavia and Octavian, no evidence at all. Yeah. He straight away declares Brutus and Cassius enemies of the state, mm. which uh, later on they show Brutus being rather happy with. Yeah. It justifies any actions that he's got against Octavian Yeah, now. and again, I think this was the theme of this episode. Brutus thinks this works to his benefit because he can manipulate the situation in an unexpected way, all right? So same with Cicero thinking he can just make Octavian consul and then play him. Mm. Brutus thinks, well, he can play this in the kind of PR of it, I guess. Yeah, it's very Pollyanna playing the glad game kind of thing. He also thinks he can see the future in a way that turns out in the opposite way, in fact, that mm. Mark Antony and Octavian will fight each other and they can mop up the remnants. Yes, it's interesting that, you know, Cicero has uh, the same reasoning as you, and this comes out later on in the episode, and accidentally kind of plants the idea of an alliance with Antony and Octavian mm. in, into Octavian's head, it seems. You can see Octavian ticking that over. Mm. Uh, and then we get the swords in the Senate thing, which we covered before, the, the very subtle kind of <laughs> declaration of, I can do this by sword point. And Cicero running down onto the floor of the Senate to have a word with Octavian then completely thinking that it would go well at all, mm -hmm. you know, that Octavia might listen to him. My dear boy, this is not what we agreed. It is not. Nevertheless, here we are. Brutus and Cassius still have many friends. You will split the chamber, the unity of the Republic. Step away from my chair. I, I couldn't believe that he did that, that he ran down there to have a word with him. So I think they do play Cicero as even more naive than he was in reality. I mean, we know a lot about what Cicero was thinking because we have his letters. Yeah. And even if he's curating a version of himself in that in those letters, like he does see some of the dangers, but he definitely does hope to get the new Caesar along to be the saviour of the Republic. And part of the tragedy of Cicero is that he never really understands that all the rules have changed. So he thinks he can say, you know, this is not acceptable and that'll be fine. But mm. once you've got, let's even say metaphorically, swords in the Senate, everything has shifted. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's not going to win just by saying, please don't do this. Yeah. It's interesting that he thinks that he's still got that kind of influence in that moment. We've now got a brothel scene. No, it's not a brothel scene. Oh, it's an orgy. It's Sorry. very specifically an orgy. Yeah. So we've now got an orgy scene. You have a better idea of what to expect at a Roman orgy than I, Rhiannon. Off you go. I think most of what you expect at a Roman orgy has just been customised by cinema, mm. uh, maybe painting before that. Yeah. There's not a lot of evidence this stuff went on at all. All right. I mean, there were brothels. They were legal. Sure. Hide behind your mosaics. <laughs> <laughs> so Agrippa finds Octavia there. Uh, figures that a woman of her standing shouldn't be in such an activity. 
Well, that's true. Well, it's hypocrite. What, that Agrippa says that when he's well, there? Well, Agrippa's there. Yeah, know. well, you know. At least Agrippa's tapping the, out early. The gender double standard is, <laughs> is something we're bringing to the table and the Romans didn't really have a problem with. Agrippa is characterised here as being uncomfortable there, though, of thinking that this is trivial stuff and yeah. we should be off, you know, properly running Rome. No, Mycenaeus is, is there and in his element and I've gone along with him. Yeah, and Mycenaeus, the way he's depicted in our sources, is as a bit of a loose... Boy, you know he's he's often described as ungirt, mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, discinctus. That that idea that he's he has loose morals. That's mm. what it means. That's what it's associated with. So I think they're they're picking up on that. And you know Agrippa already is and will turn out to be the consummate military man, as far as we know, always behaves correctly. Mm. But yeah, it would have been shocking to any Roman that an elite woman is at an event like this. Yeah. And yet Octavia is there with her friend Jocasta. Who's of a lower status yeah, anyway. So that's completely fine. Yeah. So he abducts her and that's how she frames it. <laughs> he yeah. abducted me from this, you know, quite normal orgy, which I have every right to go to. And he, he dumps her unceremoniously at home, confesses his love, exit stage left. Because I love her. You only say that because you don't know me. No. No, I know you very well. You are kind and, and full-hearted and, and, and beautiful. And, and I would tear down the sky for you if you asked me to. Wow. I do not like how they're portraying Agrippa in this series. It's a bit odd. Do you think it's just to connect him into the family more? Yeah, they've reduced him to one note. Mm. And I feel that that's a, a problem of, you know, rushing the show at this point maybe yeah so this is where the anachronistic stuff comes in where artia says to octavia you could be exiled for that kind of activity Mm. so exile is brought in very specifically for adultery the woman and her lover get exiled to separate islands okay by augustus when he's augustus oh so that's that's a much later later kind of thing Yeah. yeah yeah okay interesting so before the end of this episode then we get a scene with cicero Sitting down with young Caesar and Agrippa and Mycenaeus. I love the way that you're you're abiding by his wants. Are you giving way to Octavian here? Look, you know, if he wants to call himself that, who am I to say otherwise? Uh, he has got a sword in the Senate. <laughs> Cicero not being very impressed with the monster he's created, mm. but also kind of realising that he hasn't got much room to manoeuvre here. Trying to play it carefully, but I think it's too late. Mm. So he does demand that Octavian gives up his legions and gives him a veiled threat of saying Brutus and Cassius have 20 legions, Mm. which uh, Octavian notes is uh, more than twice what they have and more than enough to wipe them out. Yeah, and is it it after this that he meets up with Agrippa and says he is worried about that. This is all in the same scene once uh, Cicero has left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it is something he's anxious about. He doesn't show that to Cicero at all. No, that's right, yeah. And Cicero tries, again, he's kind of appealing to the old Republican ways. He says that I'm leader of the Senate, which is a proper role. It's the oldest senator, the one with the most authority, usually the oldest, the princeps senatus, and Cicero was in his final year of life. I guess because a lot of senators have disappeared at this point, he was the leader of the Senate. So he should have authority. Mm. It's just that it doesn't mean as much as it used to. Cicero doesn't intend to, but he kind of nudges Octavian to go and meet with Antony in a my enemy's enemy 
kind of way. Mm. It's the only option he's got left if it, Brutus and Cassius turn up with their 20 legions. Mm. It's a big concession, though, for Octavian to make in the context of this show, considering the relationship that he's had with Mark Antony, the big beatdown that he had just before yeah. he aged up a few episodes ago. Yeah, which he keep, keeps reminding us of in this episode. As when he should. It was pretty yeah. brutal. Yeah. When, when you... Again, let me say, no mm. evidence. Yeah, I know. But, but, but in the context of the show, yes. And but... that was the last time that he'd seen Antony. I'm guessing they didn't come face-to-face on the battlefield of Mutina, but yeah, that's what he's been left with. But he sees merit in, for the sake of the position that he wants to retain, teaming up with Antony. And so who does he send but his mother? <laughs> It's not quite the same, but it did remind me of the traditional Cleopatra appearing to Julius Caesar. That was the exact thing that went into my head. There was something of that dynamic it was, there. It was the litter. It yeah. was the pomp. Furs. Yeah. Yeah. She looked glam. Yeah. She looked great. I, I did like just how sincerely happy Antony was mm-hmm. to see her. Of course, it had probably been a while for him. Uh. <laughs> but they're also, they're kind of two peas in a pod, aren't they? Yeah. They're just on the same wavelength in terms of their view of Roman morality, mm. of how you manipulate the system as you want it. They do seem well suited to each other. It's mm. sort of a shame they're not going to end up together. Yeah, no. That seems to have been the right move for Octavian to make if he wanted to extend a hand of friendship to Antony because straight away Artius says, I didn't come alone. That was a great part yeah, of it. Yeah. It's like, you know, they're in bed together and Anthony thinks she's just come to see him <laughs> and then you see the army outside. Yeah, it's a long way to come without that. How did you get here on your own? He's so naive. <laughs> the episode ends. We should kind of backtrack just slightly to highlight that Varinus's children seem to be intent on running away, mm. uh, stealing money off their dad, trying to put some together. They try to run away in this episode, but Lydie sends them back going, mm. you know, what are you running away to? Streets yeah. of Rome are no place for children, no place for girls. It's interesting that, you know, I mean, she's right. Interesting that Varinus had seen this as a possibility mm. and had already warned her off and saying, you're not taking the children away. I think taking the children away is quite different to them running away. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. Yeah. But yeah. no, I don't think he'd foreseen that because he just doesn't seem to get what's going on in their heads at all. Mm but that she is potential alternative maternal figure, mm. which makes sense also if, I mean, you have to dig a bit between, beneath the surface, but if she's now a priestess or dedicated to Orbona, you know, she's kind of involved with children who have been left bereft. Yeah. And technically they haven't because they have their father, but, you know, they're as good as, aren't they? Because he's not much use as a father. Yeah, it's a little distressing as to how naive Varinus is playing this. I mean, the end of this episode in particular is that he seems like, you know, I've got my family back. He's sitting there around the table with everyone, with, mm. with Pullo, with, with Irene, Pullo's wife. He's got everything back, not the way that it was before, but as close as he's going to have to a happy family. Mm-hmm. By the way, Pullo's dirty joke for this scene that we only hear part of is uh, a cow can't have three balls. Mm. So can it have four nipples as well? I don't want to know what the... (laughs) This is a tried and tested, and I think probably so old that it's before your time, a kind of comedy trope that you come in on the end of a joke. Yeah, yeah, I know it is. It's pretty weak. Yeah, I know. It's like we can't be bothered to tell you the rest of the joke. 
But, that's but there right. is no rest of the joke. There <laughs> never will be. And it's just the enticing line that makes you want to listen. Look, I've used that trope before as well, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. It is a nice bliss kind of scene there. But straight away, it ends on Verena mm. doing what I guess is the Roman equivalent of crossing your fingers to signify deception at the end. Is that what that is? She makes a promise, doesn't she? I don't think we have evidence that that gesture exists, but that was the implication. But that was the implication. All it takes is the toast of family, and Verena seems to be holding her fingers in a kind of a devil kind of symbol if she was at a rock concert kind of thing. (laughs) Because when you think about it, the equivalent that we've got modern days is is crossing your fingers to show that you're deceiving somebody, I Mm. guess, behind your back. It's Mm. a little kid thing to do. But that's a a Christian connotations kind of thing of crossing your fingers. I guess so. So they wouldn't have had that back then. But, you know. Cross fingers is a weird one, though, isn't it? Because it also means you're keeping your fingers crossed that something will happen. Yeah, but it gets a point across as well. Good episode. I liked it. Had a lot in it. Mm. And talking it through has made me think there is this theme of people are always playing each other in this series, but I think particularly here. The manipulation and the kind of self-deception. Cicero Mm. thinking that he could be in charge. Verena's thinking he's in charge of his family and it's all okay now. I like how everybody in the show thinks that they're in charge and they're all very wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one of them is wrong. Almost, except Octavian. Yeah, well, okay. (laughs) And I'll tell you what happened. So it was at that point that he's come up behind me, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said to me, you couldn't spot your wife if you married a camel leopard. (laughs) I tell you what, without a doubt, that is the funniest Roman history joke I'm aware of. And on that note... You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any readily available podcatching platform. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us both on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening.